0: please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. This week, we are talking about a topic that's generated a lot of buzz in the past few months, counter space weapons. In his recent paper, Building U.S. Space Force Counterspace Capabilities, an Imperative for America's Defense, our Senior Fellow for Space Studies, Charles Galbraith, addresses the need for defensive and offensive counter space capabilities to deter potential aggressors like China and Russia. He further identifies a set of recommendations to improve the space infrastructure to better prepare for the reality of space as a warfighting domain. This includes foundational elements like how we operate our satellites, how we train our guardians, and how we gain and maintain awareness of activities in the space domain. So today, we are going to discuss these areas and importantly, what the Space Force and industry are doing to ensure our continued access to space effects and capabilities in the face of growing threats. We've assembled a dynamite collection of experts to provide different perspectives on these topics. Okay, so we are going to have an exciting discussion today. First, we have Colonel Eric Feld, who is the Director of Space Architecture in the Office of the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Space Acquisition and Integration. And in his role, he looks at what the future architecture should be and identifies what technologies and acquisition efforts the Space Force needs to get in there. So, sir, thanks so much for being here with us today.
1: Excited to be here
0: with you, Slick. Awesome. We are also pleased to introduce Matt Fetrow, who is the Director of Strategic Communication for the Space Rapid Capabilities Office, or Space RCO. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Slick. Great to be here. Also joining us is Arnie Streland from Northrop Grumman. Arnie, thanks so much for being here.
2: Thanks for having me, Slick.
0: Okay. And finally, we have our very own Charles Galbraith, who I want to congratulate you on your paper. I mean, really a great piece of work, and I'm glad it's been getting all the attention that it deserves from the media, the Hill, and the Pentagon. So really, really excited to have this conversation.
3: Thanks, Lick. Yeah, it's great to be here and uh, great to be back. And uh, thanks for the, the panelists here that are joining us for this
0: discussion. All right. So let's just jump in because we have so much great stuff to talk about. I mean, you all are are, are titans in your industry and really, Charles, I want to get started with you. So, you know, you can frame for our listeners a bit about your paper and the panel of experts that we have with us here today. Thanks, Lick. So I think we
3: all know that the threats to our space capabilities are growing, primarily from countries like Russia and China. They have developed programs specifically to target our space capabilities, to deny us that freedom of of access. But at the same time, they're also developing their own space capabilities. And if left unchecked, we could actually flip the advantage that we have in space to the adversaries. And that's something that we can't uh, afford to happen. Norms of behavior, increasing resilience, those are all important, but they're insufficient at deterring the adversary from taking the actions that we don't want them to which is why having defensive and offensive counter space capabilities is so important. But even more than that, we need to improve our overall architecture and the way we think about warfare in space to make us able to to exercise the capabilities that we need. So we need to improve our operations, training, testing capabilities in order to develop the systems and services that, that we need. Partnership with industry is going to be absolutely critical as the Space Force embarks on this journey. Uh, which is why I'm so excited to have the panel that we have here today. From an architecture, acquisition, and industry perspective, these are some of the great pioneers that we have here in the Space Force. And uh, again, thank you for being here.
0: Yeah. I mean, what an exciting time, right? I mean, it just harkens back to... um standing up the United States Air Force right i mean you, you all are creating this new force that we we frankly need not by our choosing but our adversaries have decided to weaponize this domain so I really appreciate you framing uh, that background Colonel felt I really want to turn it over to you you know the space force uh, recognizes the importance of increasing space resilience and preparing for conflict in space and we've talked about that before on the aerospace advantage and you know it's really a core ingredient in uh you know deterring conflict. So in your role in the architecture integration, what steps uh, are you seeing as most important to achieving this objective for you?
1: Three steps come to mind here. Really, the first one is the pivot to the hybrid architecture. By this, I mean especially the emergence of the proliferated low-Earth orbit elements to our architecture, which greatly enhance resilience. The addition of commercial and allied and partner elements to the architecture, which also contribute to a resilience. Those are happening at a very fast pace by Pentagon standards, and it's exciting to see that. So that pivot is underway, and that pivot is being is very helpful in moving the space force and our capabilities to the right direction. Second step that I see that's really encouraging is uh, the continuous analysis and war gaming that's underway to figure out what we need to buy. Uh, It's much more rigorous than anything I've seen previously in my career, and it's much more inclusive of the operators, the acquirers, the labs, uh, industry partners than what I've seen previous in my career. So the operational imperatives were kind of the start of this, but from there, it has spawned off into battle schools and exercises and war games that all f- help us flesh out exactly what uh, things are gonna be valuable in uh, deterring this kind of a conflict and what and which things are less valuable. So that continuous analysis really encouraging. And then the third thing that I see is what I call agile architecting. And so the fact is no matter how much planning we do, we are facing a peer adversary that makes their own decisions and that some of their responses are unexpected. They're uh, on the threat side. Some of the technology surprises can be unexpected, things we couldn't plan for ahead of time. And uh, we have a very dynamic commercial industry available now that is going to offer goods and services that we can't envision today. So whatever architecture we come up with, it needs to be agile and able to quickly adapt to those unexpected things that are happening. Calvelli's nine tenants are the way in which we're implementing that agile architecture to make sure that we can quickly respond. So those three steps are have been really encouraging to me in the architecting role as we uh, as we move towards resiliency
0: i want to just hop into one thing that you said which is really interesting you know just by virtue of the domain that we're talking about we are instantly with a pure adversary right because obviously folks that can put items into space are going to be at a technological equivalency as the united states so i mean that is like a level playing field that we need to acknowledge as we begin thinking about warfighting in this domain. So, I really just wanted to point that out for the audience because you really made that clear and we haven't discussed that yet. I want to switch over to Matt here because there's been a lot of press about the Space Rapid Capabilities Office, or RCO for short, as we mentioned earlier. And you've recently put three payloads into orbit. There are many other acquisition efforts in the Space RCO that's getting started. And Space RCO seems to be living up to its name and moving out rapidly. You know really to advance space capabilities so can you talk to the urgency of the issues that you're working and the progress that you're making
4: yeah of course like thanks there's a lot to unpack there so space rco is of course one of three acquisition organizations within the space force and really specialize in getting after those first of systems and delivering that capability to the Space Force. So in terms of urgency, you know, we've been discussing that already. Um, Even though RAPIDS in our name, uh, we're really moving out on programs to stay ahead of threats, right, Uh, they're they're moving out quickly and, and we need to be to be even faster in terms of progress um, we actually have had some successes uh, numerous ones and we've been successful when we've done a couple three or four things right um, we've been successful in part by working with industry uh, early and often um, we've been super successful when we've scoped our programs carefully another one of honorable calvary's tel- tenants essentially making sure the requirements are, are just right um, and the industry can actually provide uh, against those requirements We also have been working really hard to work with all of the US Space Force and the DOD partners that we need to work with to actually field capability, right? We're the systems acquirers, but there's a tremendous amount of effort that goes into the training and the operator work and everything else to make the system a true capability for the Space Force. And while those aren't all our role, um, we work early with all those partners as programs are started, and that has really, uh, really helped us field capabilities. And then finally, you know, discipline program execution. Uh, even with all those things, space is hard, going rapid in space is equally hard. And so we've had to really be uh, holding ourselves accountable, holding our vendors accountable uh, on the acquisition side. And I guess I'll just finish with, you mentioned a couple of our programs uh, that we've talked about lately. Uh, one is our, our space payloads uh, that we launched back in January. Uh, we had two threat awareness launch uh, sensors that were launched and uh, a crypto payload as well, a hardware encryption device. And and we're really proud to get those done uh, about three years from the start of acquisition to launch and and even more excited uh, that we've completed testing on those now. Uh, Just about six months in, we were able to do multiple rounds of testing of each of those payloads and they're operating very, very well. And then finally, I think the most important part is we actually have uh, production contracts uh, available to us now uh, where we're purchasing copies of those payloads uh, and we're providing them to uh, Space Force programs that need that kind of uh, awareness and, and crypto for their own high value assets and so i think that's really really exciting you know in, in uh, my long career in acquisition you know we might have relied on the acquisition center to go off and do their own contracts uh, but we covered that as part of our program because it's it is just one space force uh, that we we're, we're, we're working for here so long answer but uh, i think we are starting to make some progress
0: Yeah, it really sounds like it, and I appreciate the fact that you point out, you know, trying to be rapid in the acquisition world is tough enough as it is, but to do it in space is an even greater challenge, so kudos to you all for the hard work. Arnie, I want to get you in here as well, because, you know, Charles mentions in his paper uh, really highlighting the need for tight government and industry partners, and I mean, you know, it all comes down to delivering results that speak to operational requirements, and guessing given that most of the industry works in many domains, that they'll be able to apply some of their lessons learned from challenges that we see on Earth. Say, look at doing space activities, especially when it comes to, you know, offensive and defensive thinking. So from your perspective at Northrop, talk to us about strengths of the partnerships, but what areas also exist where you'd like to see some progress?
2: Yes, Slick, thank you. The whole partnership point is really important and something that deserves emphasis. Certainly we at Northrop Grumman, and I believe all all our uh, competitors across industry, agree that that government industry partnership is is key for mission success. You need that teamwork, that dialogue uh, to work through the challenges of delivering these kind of complex capabilities in a limited amount of time for a limited amount of budget. When we look across all the domains, and we're fortunate we have business across all all the different domains with all the services uh, plus the IC, the, the first thing that really comes to mind as far as how we can help uh, work with our space customers is, is connect the dots for them. You know, to accomplish a space mission, in many cases, it's all about getting data uh, from some sensor in space out to some customer, some user, some warfighter somewhere. And Some of that goes to Space Force elements, but it also goes to Army vehicles, Navy ships, Marine Tactical Operations Center, Air Force aircraft, you name it. So, we have the unique position, not just in our company, but other elements of industry, to look across all these programs and help keep our customers informed about where where the data needs to go, where it needs to be, how it can best be suited to ultimately accomplish whatever the relevant space mission is. And that gives us a a strong advantage looking across because some of our customers, they often don't have that perspective because they don't have the bandwidth. And in some cases, they don't have the security clearance to see all the parts that we do. So when you look at the mission kill chains, the mission threads that Colonel Phelps and others are working on as part of their architecture, I think we in, in industry writ large are in a good position to help our customers work through those challenges. You know, looking to the future, I think the biggest thing we can do is work on that information sharing. I mentioned security earlier, you know, security is a big part of any any space mission or any military mission for that matter, uh, whether you're talking about security access computer networks facilities uh, but That often in the past has been uh, a barrier or uh, a hindrance uh, to timely progress on programs. Uh, We're really pleased with the emphasis the Space Force leaders uh, like Lieutenant General Goodline at Space Systems Command have been putting to improve those processes. We look forward to working with them to make that even better, to um, make that even better, make the process run smoother and help everyone together be more effective. And one kind of piece of that, Colonel Felt uh, mentioned earlier, alluded to wargaming. Wargaming is an essential part of planning and architecting. And the more that data can be shared with industry, the better industry can help solve problems, help answer questions, help deliver timely capability. So the more that data can be shared, and it is It's being shared today from some of the efforts that are going on, there's some really good data sharing. Uh, There's opportunities to to expand that, to improve that in the future. So anything that can be done there to continue that and expand that data sharing with industry, it just just strengthens and fosters that teamwork that Charles noted is, is so essential for mission success.
0: Yeah, I cannot agree more. and I appreciate that comment there. Uh, I want to open this next question to everybody and it's the topic of satellite operations. You know, our legacy capabilities were built when, you know, space just wasn't contested and there's things are obviously way different now. You know, one of the major reasons why we even have a space force. So uh, we're in a position where we've got a lot of capabilities on orbit and uh, they have to operate under radically different assumptions and they need to adapt. So, you know, the analogy we've kind of kicked around is it's like taking the family station wagon out and then saying, okay, now you need to be a Humvee. So how can we get over this disconnect? And I guess we can get uh, started with Charles first.
3: You know, I talked about it in the paper, the way that we do satellite operations that, that has uh, gaps in in contact uh, and and just sporadic contact really with uh, with our satellites, it, it can't fly in, in a contested environment. We need to have assured access uh, to all of our systems so that we can respond to threats uh, as they as they materialize. And if we take it another step further uh, and actually have weapons in space, the ability to have positive control over those weapon systems is going to be absolutely critical. We we can't allow uh, a weapon system in space to uh, fall victim to a cyber attack or or, or let someone else take over the command and control capabilities of it. So we have to have positive control uh, over those assets. And and that's gonna require a significant increase in our uh, satellite operations capabilities over what we've traditionally had.
1: So my thought there is don't focus on the station wagon, at least at first, that's the hardware, but let's first focus on the people. We've got tremendous innovative guardians that are very able to come up with new tactics, techniques and procedures very quickly. We need to empower them and give them the material that they need. And so if they uh, need a Humvee, let's buy them a Humvee rather than trying to uh, adapt our, our station wagon. One example of that how that plays out in the architecture world is you know we've we've traditionally had um, a few small a few large satellites in geo and our operators have been using those. Well it turns out the the best thing we can do in many cases to protect those geo assets is to build a proliferated leo layer of the architecture because it makes them less like much less likely to be targeted. Our guardians are ready and very eager to embrace those new tools that we need to give them. And uh, I think we just need to get out there and buy the tools that they need and set them free.
4: Well, I Felt, that's uh, great for me to hear, because on the acquisition side, that's sort of my response. Let's uh, go ahead and move out on getting the Humvee put together. Um, so at Space RCO, we've got a couple programs getting after that. Uh, one is uh, called SCAR. It's basically delivering new phased array ground antennas to augment the current Space Force satellite control network. Um, that program's going well. Uh, and they're on track to deliver, knock on wood, uh, the first system in 2025. And actually, we've got a vendor subscale demonstration of that antenna planned just here in, in, in late August. So the SCAR antenna systems, in addition to adding capacity right bandwidth to the SCN, also added Lots of communication flexibility. So these antennas can contact numerous satellites at a time, uh, almost instantaneously. And the whole system is also relocatable. Each unit's relocatable, which would allow the Space Force to to place communications capacity where it's needed, right? And that that actually may change over time. And so that flexibility is key. And then on the other side, right, you've got to have software to go with all this communications bandwidth, right? So we've got a new program that we stood up with the Space Systems Command, a Joint Program Office. Uh, called R2C2, and it's all about delivering ground tactical um, command control capabilities to support these future dynamic space operations uh, that we expect our spacecraft and military to have. Um, And so R2C2 will support... um, different satellites, different mission partners that will come to us, right? And we'll be able to provide to the operator a common interface, a common tools and whatnot so they can operate these types of satellites in the future uh, much more effectively uh, and much more rapidly uh, to get after some of those decisions that they need to make.
2: The thing I think I would add is if you talk to some of the owner operators uh, over the years, they'll probably tell you that the environment they work in is, is maybe a little bit more challenging than just operating the, the family wagon. So there's things that they're doing now and, and can do in the future that could contribute to uh, what inputs the other panelists shared there. From our, our perspective, you know, Northrop Grumman has delivered over 50 different commercial geocom satellites to a variety of customers. And the, one of the things they all have in common is on a daily basis, these operators face radio frequency interference. Now, in, in wartime, you would call that jamming. In what, what is today peacetime for most of them, that interference comes by mistakes. Someone points a ground antenna in the wrong place at the wrong time, uses the wrong frequency. The results are, however, the same as intentional jamming. You're not getting your mission done. You're not generating revenue. So because of this, there's companies out there that can geolocate sources of interference share that data with the owner operators and help them resolve those issues promptly. So that you see that kind of example and they're they're already doing things to operate in in an RF contested environment. The other things the operators have in common is they do a good job of knowing where their satellites are, where they're physically located through uh, their own own, uh, tracking capabilities programs like ComSpock, they they have a good knowledge of where their systems are and what's going on immediately around them. So you take that together and a typical owner operator really has a decent idea of what the RF environment is like around their vehicles and what the physical environment is like, Where, where are they at, what's around them. So the next phase of that is can they share that with the Space Force in a timely manner? And some of that's happening today. You have some owner-operators already connected with the Space Force through the commercial integration cell at the C-SPOC. So you have information available to these owner-operators. You have the ability for them to share with the Space Force in a timely manner. So that gives you, I think, a good foundation to build on as you look for these satellites to need to operate in a future more contested environment,
0: yeah, and that's a great segue for my next question. You know one of the things I think about as a fighter pilot, if I'm going into an AOR, likely I am not having to worry about civilian traffic. I just want to make sure that I know who's a friend and who's a foe, and likely if somebody's in front of my three nine line on an initial push. They're probably not a good guy or not a civilian flying around uh, in a battle space. So, you know, when it comes to command and control or responding to threats, you know, nothing is possible without the domain awareness that we're going to need to track and identify threats. And we also need to characterize them, identify their weaknesses and limitations and provide advanced warning. So <laughs> given how large the space domain is, this is obviously a huge uh, challenge. So uh, the question is: Is our current architecture and the related systems up to this challenge?
2: Yeah, that's that's a great question, and I think as Charles notes in his paper, there's still work to go. But if you look across all the different uh, space acquisition agencies, there's a lot of effort going on uh, to address this issue right now because space main awareness is foundational to anything else you do: offensive counter space, defensive counter space. It all starts with space domain awareness. If you look at what we do at Northrop Grumman, we support upgrades and enhancements to the existing ground-based optical and radar systems while also serving as the prime contractor for GSAP and the dark radar system. So collectively, just those sensors represent a wealth of data uh, that some of this can be used today, more of it's gonna be available in the future to build a better uh, SDA site picture then in addition to those government-procured systems, you have an increasing wealth of commercial space domain awareness data provided by a variety of small small and medium-sized companies that have systems deployed around the world. And the the key, of course, is integrating all this data, government data, commercial data, all together in a timely fashion to give the warfighters that, that single, accurate, space domain awareness picture they need. And there you've got folks like Barbara Golf at Space Systems Command spearheading the procurement integration of that that commercial data uh, into a picture, single picture for government use. And you have efforts at SSC to move some of the data processing beyond the heritage SPADOC and CaveNet systems that Charles mentions in his paper. So there is still work to go. But there's a lot of great work happening today to close those gaps, address those limitations and give our warfighters the mission capability they need.
4: Yeah. So as Arnie is describing, you know, the current architecture is definitely the best in the world, but it needs to expand to include maybe more focus on tactical hazard and threat awareness. So, you know, this might include like new kinds of sensors that measure the actual threat phenomenology and sort of threatening behaviors more directly. Um, It could be, uh, as we've talked about, interference in the electromagnetic spectrum, it could be proximity, it could be other things. I think the architecture also needs to include improved aggregation and processing of existing and future data. Um, Again, how do we find the threats we're looking for in a timely fashion and sort of weed out all the chaff of objects, which are important, uh, but might, you know, just as what we got into you know, through some other means sort or of a different time time frame and then finally you know we might actually need a larger concentration of threat awareness sensors in space on, all, on, on satellites to provide local and consistent coverage um, so we're really interested in thinking about the problem differently um, threat awareness is one of the topics of this year's Hyperspace Challenge. I wanted to bring that up. We're working with AFRL uh, through this fall cohort. It's kind of an industry and government partnership accelerator. And Space RCO is participating as a problem sponsor this year, in, in large part, so we can better understand what innovation might have for uh, awareness of space threats. What might be out there in the commercial industry that we could leverage in the future
3: so arnie and and matt you, you hit on one of my key uh talking points and that is that all of the sensor data is good but unless we actually make sense of that sensor data what we're really not helping ourselves so the ability to ingest uh the government uh the commercial uh you know allied capabilities uh and their sensor data into one site picture that weeds through the the chaff and finds the wheat and says, okay, this is the, the threat you have to be uh, worried about, uh, or these are the events that you need to be, uh, be taking a look at, uh, that's what's really important. So the ability to, in a digital sense, uh, collect all that information, make sense of it, allow AI and ML uh, algorithms to do their work so that you don't have to have uh, you know, a human uh, sorting through piles and piles and piles of data. Uh, let's, let's make our data accessible uh, to those algorithms so that we can get an advantage uh, from from this emerging technology?
1: So the architecture vision that we're pursuing here is to be able to know everything of interest everywhere, all the time, in real time. And when I look at it through those four parameters, I see a lot of gaps in our space situational awareness capabilities. So we have a long ways to go. We do have all of the basic elements there, but I, we need to build out the architecture to make sure that we can answer those questions and know where to focus so it isn't a, we don't have enough sensors first of all because if you don't even have a sensor then no matter what you feed into your data processing algorithm you're not you're going to end up with garbage and just because there's data falling on the floor doesn't mean that you don't have the, the the that that you don't need more sensors because you might not be collecting the the right data that you need so there is a need for more sensors terrestrial and in orbit there's a need for sensors in more locations. Uh, we talked about uh, like cislunar space as an e- emerging area where we're going to need to maintain space domain awareness because there's activity there that could be of interest to us. We need to have uh, so we need to have sensors that we can communicate with all the time and that are observing everything everywhere all the time. So that's a lot of gaps just on the sensing side, and then that all has to be pulled together with data transport, synthesized using appropriate tools such as AI, ML, and then presented to the to the operator because of course you're not going to. We don't have thousands of operators that can be uh, uh, manually processing all this data. So we do, uh, in order to enable and deter conflict in space, we need to fill these space domain awareness gaps.
0: Okay, so I want to expand on the point about commercial and international sensors. You know, it's clear that the Space Force is very serious about integrating uh, commercial and international capabilities for all missions you know as part of the larger architecture so let's talk about why this is so critical uh, and how we can accelerate and you know if there's any limits or constraining factors that our listeners uh, should understand
4: so on the acquisition side of course we need to include you know more commercial companies international solutions in our our thinking right when we're going after uh fielding systems um that's one of the reasons again based our serious persisting the hyperspace challenge is to look uh, out at new companies different companies who might not have uh, I've been focusing earlier and and to see what's out there you talk about constraints right so for us the challenge if you will is as an acquisition organization looking to deliver capability particularly in a military organization um, it's not always easy to figure out how can you take advantage of those first of right uh, those first of products and services that companies might might have so on the services side uh, you know i would not have expected at first to see a wealth of commercial services applicable to our current focus which is protecting space assets but as as you guys know we're now seeing companies pursuing all sorts of things that are relevant like refueling uh, on-orbit servicing on orbit awareness as a service and even some companies are now talking about offering protection services now uh, which is just just amazing and then on the products and, and side, you know, the more hardware-focused side, you know, we're seeing commercial uh, offer all sorts of market-driven solutions, products and technologies that might meet the space forces' needs. We're also interested in companies that maybe haven't even recognized or decided to go into the space market yet. And so, as part of Hyperspace, we're looking at aligned markets that might have products that we could use for space protection, uh, or at least aligned to that, things like uh, the automotive industry or mobility solutions in general, the manufacturing and even mining uh, solutions. Could some of those products be actually used in the future for some sort of space protection solution? So that that's where our head is, um, but that includes international uh, and, and commercial companies both.
1: So from an architecture perspective, we can't deter China without commercial and international partners. That is clear, and the reason is is that it is the only way we can get uh, fast capabilities fielded quickly and get the innovation rapidly fielded that we need. It's the only way we can get the resilience that we need from kinetic and jamming and cyber threats. The reason you get resilience is that if you have many different ways to get the mission done and one of them is threatened, then you have the other ways to accomplish the, the mission and so these commercial and international capabilities, when they're added to the architecture, greatly contribute to re- all three of those forms of resilience. And then that leads to better de- deterrence. So we are absolutely uh, all about bringing commercial and international capabilities into the architecture to the maximum extent possible. And it really depends on mission area, whether there are viable commercial offerings in that area and what are the dependencies and threats that need to be thought through. There, there really are not uh, any significant uh, legal or policy barriers that we have found in most of the mission areas. the major constraints are cultural. Uh, this is kind of new for the space force to be embracing these commercial capabilities to the extent that we're talking about now. I think the other services ca- can show us some examples of where they've been able to take commercial capabilities and integrate them into their operations very effectively. there's some some process uh, you know limitations and constraints that we are working through, and I think that's just a normal part of bringing a new element into the architecture and some funding issues, which are a normal part of the uh, POM processes that we discuss. So absolutely essential that we do it. There are some constraints, but uh, that's definitely the future is gonna involve more commercial and international elements of the architecture.
2: I think we agree and, and all of industry would agree that commercial and international both have uh, key places as part of a resilient uh, space architecture a couple of thoughts to share. If you start with commercial, I think that the key there is, especially when you think of things like um, space main awareness data, is working to expand on the kind of commercial integration relationships that Barbara Golf and her team are, are building um, and strengthen those business cases so that it's easier for some of these companies to get longer term agreements so they can continue to invest, innovate and supply the kind of data you need. So that's just a matter of working the, the business case, the acquisition approach to make that possible. When you look at international, there there's great examples of uh, success today in international partnerships. You know, we at uh, Northrop Grumman are getting ready to launch uh, two satellites for Space Norway that uh, will also be flying to military communications payloads, frequency hopped EHF payloads to con- communicate with uh, deployed forces over the pol- polar regions that we built as well. So that partnership of flying the EPSR payload on Space Norway, that's an example of, of how you can put US systems together with international systems. There's ability for international partners to bring uh, other ideas and other capabilities in. The key thing there to focus on is, especially when you're talking about U.S. industry working with international uh, companies and international governments, is licensing. And, and uh, Ms. Deanna Riles and her team at SSC International Affairs are are really helping with that. It's just a matter of working through those agreements, those licensing, so that we can have that that kind of communications, open communications that we talked about earlier is being so important between U.S. government and industry, we've got to establish that between international industry, internet, U.S. industry, and U.S. and international government. So all those elements can work together to deliver that resilient mission capability that everyone needs.
3: Yeah, I'm really excited about the prospect of integrating commercial and international partners uh, into the overall architecture, even more than we have as the previous guests have talked about. That's absolutely exciting. I think it's important as we move forward that we all understand what the limits and constraints are for each other. You need to know going into a conflict whether or not you're going to be able to rely on that communications platform throughout the duration of the the conflict, or if there's a tripwire that they're going to pull their support for, for one reason or another. So I, I think the, the war games that uh, Colonel Felt mentioned earlier, uh, if we can incorporate all of those partners into those war games to find out where their thresholds are, where, where their breakpoints are, so that we can go in eyes wide open about what the terms and conditions are uh, before we get into conflict, we're all going to be able to cooperate a lot better and deliver the capabilities that the warfighters need. So I, I think that's an important element that we need to continue to,
0: to grow. I could not agree more. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to touch upon here, a lot of comments here about the potential capability to tap into, you know, the commercial side. So is there a particular technology or capability that you're most excited or intrigued by, especially, you know, in the context of how it can improve the security of space capabilities?
4: Well, there there is a lot of commercial innovation to get excited about, but I think I'm most intrigued um, by the range of on-orbit servicing and manufacturing capabilities being pursued by commercial And also the pace at which they're making progress in those areas and so again if you look uh, at a future space force architecture that includes you know dynamic space operations frequently moving satellites uh, basically uh, using them up wearing them out i I could see where those on-orbit servicing and manufacturing capabilities uh, could could really help out could could help out the space force
1: totally agree that on-orbit servicing is a some of the low-hanging fruit i also from the architecture perspective see low-hanging fruit in Com uh basically as we build out the internet in space or the or the extranet and especially all the proliferated uh leo com systems that are emerging today we've got terabits of capacity that are much more than we've had before in the com arena in space domain awareness we talked about the gaps there and, the, and and the potential opportunities for commercial to help fill those terrestrial and space weather seems like a something that can be well done by industry and commercial providers and then. Uh, commercial augmentation of the satellite control network or antenna as a service. That's the low hanging fruit that we've identified through our architecture studies on commercial. I do think I should say what commercial is. Uh, there is a some, some debate and disagreement about what it is, but uh, our definition of commercial really comes from the the DOD instructions. And it it means that there is a marketplace out there of buyers and sellers of a good or service that does not depend upon the United States government and especially not as the only customer. And so when that exists, that is what we call a commercial good and service. And when we can buy it without significant modifications, that's what we're calling a commercial good and service. So I
2: would certainly agree in the area of um, on orbit servicing that uh, both Matt and uh, Colonel Felt highlighted. And I would be remiss if I didn't highlight, you know, when we talked about proven capability with an existing market, uh, that really um, defines well our uh, Space Logistics LLC subsidiary and their mission extension vehicles. We have two mission extension vehicles in orbit today providing 24 uh, 7 life extension to two uh, Intel satellites that were running low on fuel. They were never designed to be serviced, but we went up, we docked our two vehicles with them and they're operating successfully, getting their mission done today. Soon we'll have the next generation of space logistics vehicles up there that includes our mission robotics vehicle and mission extension pods that can not only perform the life extension, that we do today but also perform on-orbit repairs or even add mission capabilities. So that's an example of commercial innovation that's happening right now uh, to commercial customers and we're excited to uh, continue to demonstrate that capability and make that available also to the government so they can take advantage of this commercial investment.
3: Yeah. You know, when I think about the commercial capabilities that are out there, I feel like a kid in a candy store because there's so many uh, areas that they're they're really moving the ball forward with. Uh, and it's exciting. We'll make it a clean sweep across the panel here. I agree on orbit servicing is one of those really exciting areas and can be a game changer for how the U.S. Space Force uh, looks at its space operations in the future. Uh, I'm, I'm always excited about innovations in launch. Uh, we've seen some of the, the dramatic changes in the way we look at things with the ability to put up a proliferated Leo constellation because of changes to launch. Uh, so I think there's some other potential exciting areas uh, to have be had there. Uh, and of course, as we move out to cislunar space, that's a partnership with civil, of course, and international partners, but there's also a lot of commercial activities that are headed in that direction too. And so the way that the, the Space Force can partner with those and help shape those and, and learn from those, I think is, uh, is also very exciting.
0: Yeah, all, all great comments, guys. I just really can't say thanks enough for being here. So changing up the way that we normally would sign off uh, with the normal, you know, thanks for having me, goodbye. I want to allow you guys just to really leave us with a good parting shot or thought that you have as, as you close out. Again, my thanks to you and Charles. Congratulations again on the paper and what an amazing panel you put together. So thanks for being on the Aerospace Advantage. So I'd like to go ahead and get started with Charles and then we'll go down the list. Thanks, Slick. I appreciate that.
3: And uh, my thanks to the panel as well. For the audience, this is not a done deal, right? This is not a solution that is just waiting to be implemented. There's a lot of intellectual work that has to be done to figure out exactly what we need to do. The theory of uh, competitive endurance is great, but we need to refine that. We need to expand uh, our, our thoughts about what that is. Logistics clearly might fit into that as we think about the endurance piece of competitive endurance. So don't think that we've got the answers. We need to just keep pressing forward. Charles,
1: as I read your paper, I thought about it in the context of General Saltzman competitive endurance theory as well. And he has challenged us to work on that, debate that, refine that. And your paper takes a huge step forward in that regard. And his three tenets are the things we've talked about today. You know, avoiding operational surprise, that all boils down to good space domain awareness of what's going on there, denying first mover advantage. That's what we're doing with the hybrid architecture and the proliferated LEO uh, parts of it, especially. And then responsible counter space campaigning. That's all about how we defend our space capabilities as well as protect our joint forces from space enabled attack. So his theory that he laid out there is a great framework in which your paper fits and it really makes some strong steps forward. So thanks for the opportunity to be here today and thanks for writing the paper.
4: Well thanks to the Mitchell Institute for having me on today. Just been a great great conversation. I guess I did want to do one shameless plug for the fall cohort that AFRL is putting on, I mentioned called Hyperspace Challenge. I'd like to encourage companies that are pursuing products or services that might some way help us in space protection. Uh please take a look at the uh, look at what we're offering, look at the cohort on hyperspacechallenge.com. And again, thanks again. Yeah, thank
2: thank you as well. Thank you to Slick. Uh thanks to the Mitchell Institute and Charles for for a great paper and for putting this all together. And the thing that struck me as I was reading the paper and then participating in this discussion is, you know, not long ago, discussions like this only happened in skiffs. A big shout out to the Mitchell Institute and Charles in particular for bringing this whole discussion into the public realm where it needs to be to address the resource challenges, the policy challenges, the acquisitions ahead. As Charles said, this is not a done deal. So it's going to take a lot of work by government, by industry, all working together to maintain that space superiority that that our warfighters depend on. So thanks again for the opportunity and, and thank you to Mitchell Institute and again to Charles for bringing this important discussion into the public
0: realm. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to The Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following The Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.